Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. All right. Um, today I wanted to just bring to you some things I thought you know, might be helpful for you and your practice um, and talk a little bit about what, we're, what it is we're doing here, you know, why we practice in this way and, and uh, then we'll leave plenty of time for any questions or discussions. So what is it we're doing here? Why did we come to a Zen center? You know, the answer I think uh, is different for everyone, but in general, I think, you know, the commonality is that we're looking for something, something maybe doesn't feel right in our lives or our world or the way we're interacting with it. Um, we've heard maybe some stories uh, about the possibility of some ease and freedom. And so we come, you know, to a place like the Zen Center, looking for a bit of that liberation, ease and freedom. Freedom from suffering. Um, the Buddha, you know, is, legend has it taught, you know, that, that life is suffering. At least that's the kind of popular uh, cultural way of interpreting his, the first statement of the Four Noble Truths. But in a commentary on the Shinshin Ming, um, we're told that, you know, life, it's not life is suffering. That's not exactly what he said. When, when you say it that way, it becomes an ideological statement right? that, that life is something or it is not something like by itself. But Buddha didn't provide ideological statements. This was not an, an ontology that explains the universe and how it got here and our path in it. Instead, he was talking about dukkha as a sense of unsatisfactoriness, right? This is the reason uh, we might show up here and we might start this practice is we have this sense that something is not satisfactory. Dukkha has been described as a wheel out, out of kilter on your wagon. So every time it goes around, there's just a, a chachonk, a bomb. You know, it's that shopping cart you always get in the grocery store. It's amazing how you always get that one. <clears throat> what he did say was, Sabe Sankara Dukkha, all formations have the characteristic of dukkha. So all formations have this characteristic of unsatisfactoriness. Sankaras are mental formations or constructions. Sabe, sankara, dukkha. All formations or all mental formations or conceptual constructions have the characteristics of unsatisfactoriness. And then he said, Sabe Sankara Anicca. All constructions have the nature of impermanence. Your mental formations or constructions are not permanent. They're going to change. Sabe Dhamma Anatta. All phenomenon have the nature of non-self. 
So while impermanence and non-self may be a feature of these uh, sankharas, a feature of your mental constructions, mental formations, dukkha is very much a psychological feature resulting from our relationship to those constructions. So it's really the, the suffering, the unsatisfactoriness comes to our relation, comes from our relationships to the constructions. It comes from the um, idea that they're solid, that they're unchanging, that they're right or wrong. We as humans have a way of, you know, mapping and mapping our world. Right? Coming up with shortcuts, with um, uh, ideas or labels of people, of things, of things we've done in order to make sense of it, in order to remember and, and learn. But if you get caught in the view that the way you're thinking about it is real, is right, is fixed and unchanging, you're going to suffer, right? Because it's just not how the world works. If you were to mistake constructions and formations for permanent as being or having a solid separate self, you'll end up having a skewed relationship to them. And Buddha's main enterprise was to speak to those skewed relationships, not about the constructions themselves. So dukkha is a relational quality. It's how we feel when we meet our mental formations and constructions and when we believe them and uh, uh, see them to be fixed and to be about us. The Shinshin Ming says, the great way isn't difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. Let go of longing and aversion and everything will be perfectly clear. When you cling to a hair's breadth of distinction, heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. So in the first noble truth, where we won't say life is suffering, we'll say our relationship to our life causes suffering. The second noble truth is that you know, the root cause of it is our attachment. Because we are committed and attached to the way we look at things. We become inflexible. We can't move with life as it is. We can't dance with it. We get stuck fighting it. So, what do you do about that? You know, you show up at a Zen center, you uh, take up a practice like that, like this, and we're told to, uh, here, have a seat. Yeah, plenty of space. Oh, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. And then uh, sometimes we might ask for instruction. If you're lucky, you might get some. 
<laughs> if you were, if you were, you know, a typical Lesotho Zen practitioner back in the day, what you would get would, would be a teacher saying, oh, just sit. Just sit. You don't have to do anything. But in our practice, it's a little more sneaky than that. We're asked to sit still, unmoved, upright. How we do it matters. This is a, a practice we do with our bodies. We bring our bodies to the cushion. Our mind comes along for the ride, but you're really bringing your body. And then when you're told what to do, we tell you what to do with your body. Sit. Still. Right. Those are instructions for your body. No one told you to stop thinking. We all automatically assume that, don't worry. But no one's telling you to stop thinking, but they're telling you to stop moving. Sit. Still. How to sit. Upright. Not leaning one way or the other, not for or against, not left or right. Again, this is an instruction for your body. And how we do it matters. We bring an upright, dignified presence to this moment, no matter what happens. We sit still, upright, present. We don't run away. Most of the time. <laughs> and that's one of the benefits of doing this practice with other people. Uh, is you'll feel bad about getting up and running away in the middle. So it helps you stay. Sit and stay. So we sit. As Joko would say, this is our process. Seeing what's up. This is how we go about finding this freedom and liberation, by sitting there, seeing what's up. Here's from Joko, nothing special. Sitting is not about finding a happy, blissful state. The states may occur in sitting when we've really experienced our pain over and over so that finally there's just letting go. That surrender and opening into something fresh and new is the consequence of, its, of experiencing pain, not a consequence of finding a place where we can shut the pain out. So we sit, we see what's up. We don't try to invoke a particular state. We can become aware of the state that we have. Joko again. Meditation is not about some state, but about the meditator. So we sit, we become aware, we see what's up, what's actually happening right now. And we practice that over and over and over again, being unmoved, being upright in the face of whatever is arising with dignity. People often have trouble though um, with what to do with the things that <laughs> arise during the sitting. And Joko was very fond of a particular practice of thought labeling. And in that instruction, she would advise students when they realized they were 
intertwined with a particular story or thought to, and, and in a moment they became aware of it, to use that witnessing presence to put a little one or two word label on what they noticed they were doing. Oh, grocery planning. And now I'm gonna go back to just say, put a quick label on it. Oh, arguing with my parent. Remembering an argument. Go back to sitting. Oh, uh, fantasizing about cool Rocky Mountain weather. <laughs> oh, go back to sitting. This is waking up to what you do. This is exercising the awareness muscle. Um, by definition, you can't label a thought you were having, having unless in that moment you inhabited some witnessing presence that saw the thought you were having, having. So every time you do that, every time you can label a thought, you are stepping out of the self-centered dream into the witnessing presence, even if for just a moment to apply a label and come back. We're exercising the awareness muscle. We're exercising the ability to not be identified with the stream of consciousness. We're being like the mirror, reflecting what we see. The mirror makes no judgment. Whenever we judge, we've added another thought that needs to be labeled. So it could go, oh, grocery planning. Dang it, I drifted off into space again. I should just be paying attention. Oh, judging myself, <laughs> right? And then go back. So we're not here. If you have the judgment, that's just another thought to label. Can we sit and, and without suppressing any of our personal way of being in the world without suppressing it can we just be aware of it can we just sit with it oh angry thoughts i wonder what's going to happen next very magic likes to give beginning instruction practice instruction by saying Sitting is like sitting down and facing a mirror. Your face automatically appears. You can't do it right or wrong. Your only job is to sit there and watch. So we're not using the mind, the little mind to fix ourselves. We're just watching. Here's Joko from Nothing Special. We can't use our little mind to correct the little mind. It's a formidable problem. <laughs> the very thing we're investigating is also our means or tool for investigating it. The distortion in how we think distorts our efforts to correct the distortion. 
we're not here to solve. We're not here to conceptually get to the root of our way of thinking. We're just here to sit and notice. There's only one way out of this closed loop and to see ourselves clearly. We have to step outside the little mind and observe it. Joko. When we label a thought, we step back from it. We remove our identification. There's a world of difference in saying, she's impossible. And having the thought that she's impossible. One is identified with it. One believes she's impossible. The other one is open. It's the witnessing presence saying, oh, there I go, thinking she's impossible again. But there's a bit of space there. It could be true or it could not be true. There's an opening. The more we observe and understand small mind, the less we will be caught by it. For many years, practice is about strengthening the observer. What we get out of practice is being more awake, being more alive, knowing our own mischievous tendencies so well that we don't need to visit them on others. <laughs> I heard one uh, student say his interpretation of the Bodhisattva vow of liberating all beings was to liberate all beings from his idea of how they should be. And in that way, you can actually liberate all beings just like that. One of my favorite all-time quotes is from Ryushin Paul Holler, who was the abbot of San Francisco Zen Center for a while. And he said, awareness is the crucible where the alchemy happens. A crucible is a vessel that holds something intense, normally in a, in a foundry, liquid metal. It's a vessel that can withstand the heat of the furnace while containing what's inside it until it's molten. A crucible, it's a pretty uh, intense place, a transformative place. Awareness is the crucible where the alchemy happens. Alchemy is, you know, kind of mystical, magical, process of changing you know, straw into gold, legendarily, right? <clears throat> Awareness is the crucible where that alchemy happens. And this is the magic of practice. It produces something new out of thin air, a choice, a new perspective, a gap between your identification of the thought and your reaction to it. If you can be aware, in that moment, something new is created, an opportunity for choice. When there's a reactive pattern, there is no choice. There's only reaction. So we come to a Zen center, we sit, 
We learn to be aware. We learn to not identify with our thoughts. We practice strengthening the awareness muscle, sitting still, upright, unmoved. And we start to wake up to what we're actually doing moment to moment. And if we stick with it, we start to soften the idea of self. All the ideas that we have about how we are. Oh, I'm not good at public speaking. Or I can't go to that party. Large groups make me nervous. All these ideas we have of ourselves can constrain us. They lack possibility. When we're identified with the idea of self, we're convinced that we know how things are and how they're going to be in the next moment. And there's very little need to try anything else. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering holding to self-centered thoughts. That's exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. That's all you need. If you just stay awake in each moment to what's actually happening, not your ideas of it, that's the only teacher. And if you can be just this moment, not acting on what you think of the other person or what you've known about them or the situation, if you can just be this moment and what's actually responding to what's actually happening, that's compassion's way. This is where liberation starts. Here's Flint. Liberation is freedom from all that we habitually use to define ourselves as separate and special, and therefore opens us up to the vast, interconnected, impermanent world we live in. Our brains secrete thoughts all the time just as the stomach digests food. It's pretty easy to see how, they, how transitory they are, how they change and how they come and go. They're a little easier to not be caught by. Our ideas of self are much more sticky, more subtle. Suzuki Roshi, when you're completely absorbed in your breathing, there's no self. What is your breathing? 
That breathing is not you nor air. What is it? It is not self at all. When there is no self, you have absolute freedom. Because you have a silly idea of self, you have a lot of problems. So I say, your problems are homemade. <laughs> Suzuki Roshi often talked about the idea of self. It's one of his favorite ways to try and communicate the practice. That was from 1966. 1969. The fundamental suffering is caused by the idea of self. Because actually, even though we understand in this way, we ignore our understanding and stick to the self, idea of self. I, I, I. You know, we always say, I, I, I. Ignoring how everyone else will be. That's actually true. I'm sorry to say so, but it can't be helped. If you have this kind of wisdom, you will completely understand why we suffer and how we could get free from suffering. To know the cause of suffering is to attain the way to be free from suffering. So we come to a Zen center, we sit, we practice awareness with others. We don't run away from what we see. We learn to step back from it, but to invite it in, not to escape it. And there we find a little freedom for ourselves and others. Freedom for them to be who they're actually going to be in that moment. Not what we expect based on our last encounter with them. And we can create openings for ourselves and others in the world. Thank you very much. try to uh, leave us a, bit amount, a good amount of time here for any questions or thoughts or reflections on this. I'd be happy to hear your thoughts about what you're noticing in this practice. You know, what aggravates you about it? <laughs> what, what don't you understand? Or anything else? Floor's open. Hands jump right in. Right. Um, thank you. Can you speak a little bit about identifying the observer as the self and whether how Identifying the observer as the self. 
So what I think you're saying is in Joko's thought labeling, she gives people the exercise of inhabiting the awareness kind of detached from the thought. And you're saying what happens when we start saying, oh, I'm aware all the time. Like I'm identified as the awareness now. I'm good. Like I'm alive. <laughs> I'm seeing it all. I'm seeing it all. <laughs> so right. I'm not doing it. That's I'm right. watching it. <laughs> yes. Okay. So here's the instruction. Hmm? Having the thought that I'm seeing it all. Hmm. Hmm. The concept is easy. You just got to do it 10,000 times. <laughs> a minute. <laughs> I want. <laughs> All right. Uh, other comments, questions? Oh, good. Thank you, Marla, and thank you, Todd, for a, a real kind of cut to the chase sort of talk. I really like that so much. I, I, I just wanted to say that I. Just in response to what um, <clears throat> to what Anne was pointing to, that um, Joko talks a lot about emotion thoughts, you know, and the way that, that things come up in your body, and then you have a thought that justifies them, and that sort of thing, and that that she sees aversion and grasping connected with those more than with the labeling part, the witnessing part that can label things. So I, I see that, I, I see Anne's point as very strong and I, I, uh, really important that it is possible to cling to a delusion that having had some insight into an emotion thought that you are, you got somewhere or something. And as, as you say, you just have to do it 10,000 times and, and then see what happens. But. But at any rate, I, I, I do think that there is some way in which being able to separate the emotion, this Joko talks about this quite a bit in, in some of her writings, to be able to separate the feeling in the body from the thought and realize that they are not actually intrinsically linked, but that they just, they happen to be arising together right now. And, uh, and that's why everything's so, in, everything's, it makes things feel immediate and urgent and strong and that by labeling them, you can just put a little wedge between those two parts to free yourself from that urgency. So, that's all. Thank you. Ken, yes. I, I think what we're getting at is, is uh, for me, is there's a lack of spontaneity if you, if you are always outside of yourself looking in with this awareness. You know, that, that's not how I want to go through life, nor the other way of being completely not aware. There's something in between. Is that what you're getting at? If I walk down the street and I say to myself, you know, as I'm walking, I'm aware that I'm aware that I'm walking down the street. 
you know, that kind of ruins it in a way, in the same way as just enjoying walking down the street. There's something in between, are there? Yeah, what I would say is that with practice, you get faster and faster at it until it's not, uh, it doesn't feel like you're not spontaneous. It just feels like a new way of, of being. And just like you hear the bird song and the dog bark and feel the wind for a moment as you hop over the curb, you also see the flash of thought like hate the dog as you hop over the curb. Like, I was having the thought that I hate barking dog. But it all comes, comes and goes so quickly. I don't think that it's inhib inhibiting your ability to dance with life. Yeah, so these are glimpses, kind of, you have the glimpse, and, but then you, you kind of can leave it. Right. But I understand also that this labeling thing was not meant to be an entire, uh, like, Zazen practice, but something you would do to, to, uh, you know, kind of like a body scan, mm -hmm. a mind scan something as part of the sitting, as part of the meditation. You did the whole meditation on that. I mean, I don't think that was intended. Do you? That's what I've heard. It was, yeah, it's not a focus. I don't believe it was ever given as a focus of practice. Like, you're going to sit here, wait for a thought, and then label it. It was more of a technique on what to do. You know, the focus maybe was counting your breath, uh, you know, following the breath, shikantaza, some other practice. But when you realize you had been lost and identified with the thought, put a label on it as you as you're aware, right before you come back to your focused practice of say following your breath. The other thing to know is that all of these things we're talking about um, are highly individualistic, right? They're customized towards the person and their uh, particular habitual patterns and, and phase of practice. These kinds of instructions were something that a teacher would give you or take away from you or change over time as your practice unfolded and they helped guide you as best they could. So it's a it's not a one size fits all. Thank you, Kim. I'll say one more. Go ahead. What you just said seems really important in the difference between a Dharma talk and a practice discussion, which is about one's individual practice. Right. The kind of general. Right. We generalize as best we can because there's definitely universal themes in how we meet life and how we get stuck. Um, but the practice and what you're actually doing is usually very individual. I mean, just like what, what Anne does in her medical practice, where she, you know, generally it's good to have, to have a lot of exercise. But for a particular person, they might it might be best to lay still 
right? And so it's, it's tricky. If you Google it, right. what should I do? <laughs> yes, Bridget. Hi. Did Joko or any other teachers that you've alluded to today made any reference to um, thoughts that are driven by the emotion of fear? Um, I don't know. I mean, I can't think of any, right? I'm sure they did, but I can't think of any. Can you explain why you're asking and what you're curious about? Well, I'm asking because the um, my granddaughter had her one year old birthday yesterday, and a lot of children and families were going to be at this community pool, but there was no lifeguard. Mm -hmm. And actually, a member of an Apamata member here, her grandchild died on the occasion of his two year old birthday when they were cleaning up afterwards. Mm -hmm. And at one point, my own son, my younger son, was playing with his nephew, and then he turned and he was swinging him around, but his head was being dragged under the water and I had this a moment of fear and so I was afterward my of course my son I said Paul and then he said don't talk to me like that he pulled him up but he said don't don't talk to me like that and of course I was reacting out of fear but it's just how do you I mean I sat down and I tried to get myself back and you know I was just really frightened um, and Paul sat down and then you know the little two and a half year old big brother ran over we were the one being dumped under and ran over to his mom you know swaddled over his mom and this was in the baby pool but um i just i don't and paul sat down and then said hey paul sorry but it's just in those moments i i lose it no one else lost it there were three or four adults watching this happen but i lost it Mm -hmm. my equanimity. So I'm yeah. wondering how to address these, these fears or thoughts of fears or emotions that drive my thoughts, that I have to be the one that, that says, pull him up. Yeah, so Let's try and put it in the form of a question. Well, my question was to have any of these teachers talked about how to... Um, well, I was hoping, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I was hoping is to put it in the form of a very personal question, not a concept. How do I... How do I keep from being the person that immediately goes to fear and and bellows out. There's, I'm smiling, but just because it's uh, it's uh, such a tricky thing, right? <clears throat> because we we can start with the presumption that it's wrong and you shouldn't yell out, and then sometimes children drown. So that to presume that you need to get rid of this, right? It's, maybe we need to hold that as provisional and, and lightly, right? Maybe we don't always need to get rid of it, but it's trying to discern 
when do you speak? When do you act? Right? And that just comes with practice, with getting um, more familiar with your habituated pattern. And you're doing a beautiful job of describing it. You started by saying where it comes from, somewhere of the background history, why maybe you're more sensitized someone who hasn't seen that or been through it. So you know that about yourself. You, you, you do, in that you didn't know it in the moment between the heart leaping and the yelling. There was no, there was no thought labeling there. There was a reaction, right? right? Say, jump in, save. But the more you see how these stimulus in the world produce your personal response, the quicker you'll get at seeing your response and, and being able to put a little corrective lens on it. Like, oh, I know I'm, I'm more predisposed to worry or fear. So maybe I'm going to take a beat and see what everybody else is doing, you know, before I jump in the pool, <laughs> you know, you'll get, you just get quicker at it. Okay. I think we have time for one more, maybe. Looks like Rosemary. Oh, okay. Rosemary? Hi. Hi, Todd. So I find that um, with when strong emotion comes on when I'm sitting, or, or even when I'm not, but certainly when I'm sitting, it's really hard to, I think there's a judgment about that. Whoops, did we lose Todd? My laptop's out of batteries, but I can oh, still oh, okay. I can okay. see you and hear you, but it shut down. <laughs> uh, yeah, to, um, to, um, Give it the space to label, or I, I don't often think of labeling, so I think I will try that. Um, but when it's very powerful, um, um, yeah, it is. It is hard to, um, yeah, to uh, give it the space that would help to. Um, and see, I'm, right now as I'm talking, to calm down. You know, that's this, is, of course, comes from. You know history that um that's not so good to get so overwhelmed um so yeah i guess the question would be um what would help to um well what i love about what you're saying the whole time and it makes so much sense that to have a compassionate view for these parts that we might not be comfortable with um and that's what I'm working with is finding that compassion when I'm not when I'm not calm. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone for your participation today. Let's wrap up.